Well, happy Father's Day to everybody. Everybody, even the ladies. What does every father want on Father's Day? Anybody know? Huh? Want to be left alone? <laughs> oh, man. I, uh, for those of you that helped yesterday, thanks again. We had uh, a lot of people show up at 10 o'clock. Uh, I was worried about our basket pushers for a while. I thought it was going to be me and Lynn, but we ended up with a lot of, a lot of people showed up at 10 o'clock, and we'd served over 250 families again, I think, and uh, so it was great. You know, appreciate everybody's help. Even if you were there, you made it possible by your giving for us to be able to do that. My, uh, Oldest daughter, Martha, her whole family were there, and they gave me moves, so they wanted boxes, and I said, okay, I'll make you a deal. I know you get tons of boxes, and all you got to do is come work help day, and you can give all the boxes you want, so, but, but they came, and, and I was asking, my, my son-in-law was pushing baskets, and Martha and, and her two children were upstairs doing the clothes closet, and so, I, you're going in and out, and you're running into people, and, and my son-in-law, Brett, asked me, he said, y'all do this every month, and I said, yeah, every Every third Saturday of the month, because if you see it for the first time, it's a pretty big deal. There's a lot going on in, in a couple of hours. There's a lot of stuff that moves through the, the gym and, and a lot of clothes upstairs. And we get to bless a lot of people. And, love them. and I was sharing with my class this morning. I was pushing baskets for the first about an hour and a half and, and always ask people if I can pray for them. And when I first meet my name, Randy, and I tell them, we'll go through the line, we'll get the food, talk about where you're from, in this area, and just get this talking. And, and invariably, somehow they'll find out that I'm the pastor of the church. And boy, they, they light up. Like, well, they say, right, I'm good, I got the pastor. And so we get out there, and I'm praying with them. They'll call other people over. Look, 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 the pastor's going to pray for us. Like, my prayers are more significant. They're not. And, but it's so special. I'm praying with these three ladies, and I looked up and crossed the parking lot. I saw Dick Hunter praying with some people, and I looked at the other part of the parking lot, and I saw a sweet lady from Bartlett praying with some other folks, and uh, saw some teenagers. doing. It's really uh, it's a blessing to me as a pastor to look up. And, and then you walk in the gym, and you see all these these people, our folks, just putting food in their basket and in a loving, smiling way, you know, telling them, we're glad you could be here, we could bless you, and, and just, it's just a special time. And, and you go upstairs, and it's, man, it is hectic upstairs in that small area, seeing those people, and, and the clothes that they get, and they're so blessed to realize, I've had a couple of ladies tell me, I've never had clothes this nice, and that we don't ask anything, we're just loving them in the name of Jesus, and it's, it's very special that we can do that, so thank you all for it. And for fathers, if nothing else, I think as Christians who happen to be fathers or grandfathers, the coolest thing that you'll ever do is, even as they get older and even as they're adults, I was talking to my 32-year-old son last night and trying to explain to him the best way to do something again. But he's 32, so I'm sure that will happen, continue for a while. But as a father or, or as a grandfather, it's just so special that you get to regularly really take advantage of the time because it just goes by so quickly. The time that you get to pour into them encouragement about their relationship with the Lord Jesus, encouragement about life ahead of them, 
I think about my oldest granddaughter will be 15 next month. Uh, there's a, I have a picture on in my office at home of me holding her when she was just an infant. There's a pterodactyl flying around up here. <laughs> Emerson, you bring one of your dinosaurs with you? There's a pterodactyl flying around up here. But just how quickly, and I remember, I was thinking about Emerson this week, and I remember when she was born, she's two years younger than Ella, and I remember us being at the hospital, and uh, Emerson had been born, and so they're rolling Emerson from the nursery, I guess, to the best room, and Ella was pushing the cart. And you know, what's the T-shirt you always get if you're the oldest sibling and, and then another one's born? You always get a T-shirt that says what? Big sister or big brother. So she had her, I think she had a big sister T-shirt on and pushing Emerson in there. And I've got a video of that somewhere on one of my phones but, or my computer or someplace. But I remember I was thinking about Emerson this week and just remember how... how and I remember, I won't embarrass her, but I remember, yeah, I will. It's a, it's a gift. But I, I remember just watching how, didn't, we had no idea how bright she was, when she, obviously, when she was little and an incredible intellect. And uh, I remember putting her in a room at our house to take a nap, and she, she wasn't having any of that. She was coming out of that bed every, every moment, every opportunity she was coming out of that bed. I mean, I'm going to put this on me and I don't remember what I had in the So I took her out of the car and took her in the house and set her down. I went back out to the car to get something. I came back and she was on top of the piano. I thought, how did she get up there that quickly? I don't know, but uh, you knew the moment she's quick. Quick as a cat in many ways. But as fathers, there's nothing more special. I don't care what you do for a living, what your vocation is, and your avocations, all the things you're involved in. There will never be anything more significant than the time you do to spend as a father with your children. And if you're blessed to be a grandfather, it's just the coolest thing in the world goes. Uh, they ain't your problem. And you got a whole lot of fun with them, and then it be somebody else's problem. So it's a, there's a reason God uses metaphors and analogies and terms like God is our father. And he talks about earthly fathers. And if your father is a a believer, uh, it's a true blessing. Mine was not, and it was, a, it was hard. And I'll, I'll tell you this quick story, I promise, and we'll move on. Um, this week, sharing this with my class at, at 930, the, the gentleman died. None of you, one or two of you know him. His name was Fred Grogan. Fred was a pediatric allergist here in town, a very successful man. But after I became a Christian, we all called him Doc, and, and we started, we would go to Doc, going to church when Mary got saved at that church. So every Sunday night, we would go to Doc and Nancy Grogan's house. The teenagers wouldn't hang out. They lived in, in Germantown. They had a pool. I thought they must be the richest people in the world. They had a house and a pool, and it was, I, I, I mean, well, I'd never seen anything like that. And so I found out accidentally that we were related, that uh, Doc's mother and my mother were Doc's mother, Doc's wife's mother and my mother were first cousins. So to, to this day, his daughter, we call each other cousins. She's on staff at Central Church, and we just call each other cousins. But Doc Grogan, I was 16 years old. I hadn't been saved but two or three months, and you know, I'm just hanging out and being cool because that's who I am. And we always went to the house every Sunday night. So I'm out in the driveway just shooting basketballs. I love doing that. And he comes out there, and the first man to ever say anything like this to me, he said, Randy, you ought to consider going into the ministry one day. Now, at 16, again, I'd only been saved a few months. At 16, what am I thinking about? Making money and women. That's all I'm thinking about. You know, that, that I'm cool, and, and I want to play basketball, make money, and, and find a, a woman. And at least I got married. I got that part. So he was the first, every time I've seen him, and I told him this when his wife passed me, I said, Doc, I don't know if I've ever told you this. 
And I, gosh, this was, what, I don't know, in the last 10 years, Nancy passed away. So a long time. And I, remember, and I said, you were the first man that ever saw something in me that God was doing. I had no idea. And I want you, and he was always encouraging me. Every time I would see him, he'd been an elder at Central forever and a great, a godly man. And every time I would see him, he was just encouraging me about what was going on in my life. And even after I went in the ministry and, and what, how are you doing and what's going on, just a tremendous man of God. And he didn't know that that had any impact on me, but God, it did. And so even as a father or a grandfather or just a male who could pour into someone younger than you, Understand what a privilege that is and, and take advantage of it and, and don't let it pass you by. All right, turn to the book of Acts. What we're going to do today is finish up this story at Philippi. And if you'll notice the top of your handout, we're talking about God opening a new continent, that continent being Europe. And we're not going to go back over everything we talked about last week, but just to set the stage in chapter 16 where we are. We're going to start in verse 19. But God, in his, in his big plan of the Great Commission, wants Paul and those with him. Paul's going to Luke. He wants them to go to Europe. Open a continent, specifically to a place called Philippi. We're going to start there in the continent of Europe, this place called Philippi. So God's going to open this, this new continent. Last week, we looked at number one in your handout, through prepared hearts, with the story of Lydia, and even the story of the being possessed girl. Number two in your handout, through persecution. And that's kind of where we left off. We're looking at that story. But here's what the first principle I want to make sure you got a handle on before we walk through the rest of the story of Philippi. Without question, let me do this last week, I want to read it again. Without question, God made it clear to Paul and Silas and the crew, I want you to go to Macedonia. Because their plan, which was a good idea, nothing wrong with it, their plan was, we want to go back to Asia, where we've been on the first missionary journey. We want to go back there and encourage again, see how they're doing it, those churches, those, those new believers, encourage them, disciple them, have them a little bit, let's go back and see how they are. God comes that door repeatedly and send them a vision of a man in Macedonia saying, come to us. So ob- obediently, Paul and the boys said, we're going to go to Macedonia. So please get this principle first and foremost. Without question, God's, what they want to do was a good thing. The better thing, the best thing is what we always seek as believers. What does God want? God wanted them a good thing, yes, but the best thing was God wanted them to go to Philippi, which was going to open this new continent of Europe to the gospel. So two things. Number one, God's will is always best. Perfect. When God says clearly, this is what I want you to do, even though you have a great idea, and so many times in the church, we do have this great idea, we're going to God and say, what? We're going to get what we came up with this time. And what you going to step in, bless my God, we'll move on. We just need to be thanking God, what is your will, what you want us to do, let's do that. Sometimes that means stopping something here to do something else. We're not going here like Asia, but I want you to go someplace else. Europe. Asia would have been good. Europe was better or best. That's number one. And number two was, without question, that's what God wanted them to do. Because don't forget that. Because when they get to Macedonia, specifically Philippi, Macedonia is the area, Philippi, the town, the city of Philippi, they don't have any place to minister. Well, wait a minute, God, you sent us here, but there's no, nothing for us to do, no place to go. We can't go to the synagogue and have one. So they go down to the river where the seekers would meet outside the pagan city, where the seekers of the Jewish God would seek truth. They go to them, and in the process, Lydia is saved. And the church begins at her house in Philippi. Second principle. Despite the fact that it was clearly God's will to do this, it involves incredible persecution. And that's where we are now, on number two on your handout. Incredible persecution. 
And that's so important to understand and remember and never forget. When you're trying to do what God wants you to do, and you're walking in the steps that God has ordained for you, honoring him, serving him, as Paul told Timothy, if you're desiring to live God in Christ Jesus, mark it down. You will be persecuted. Absolutely will. It comes with the territory called, called a blessing. The supper for the name of Christ is an honor, he said. Why? Because you're furthering the kingdom of God, which is eternal as opposed to temporal, all things which we focus on in this life. It's like being a father. All that happens in this life, yes, some, some things are incredibly good, some are really hurtful, can even be traumatic, painful, emotional, grieving, yes, but all temporary. Paul called it grievous trials that you must go through for a little while, Peter did. James said, fiery trial. Count it all joy when you fall into daily trials, James said. It comes with the territory. So they get the Philippi. Many in her house are saved. They run into the demon possessed girl. They cast the demon out of her. Now we get to verse 19. What's the first word? Verse 19. But, but somebody can read. Verse 19. But when her masters, this is the masters of the demon possessed girl, they saw that their hope of profit was gone, marketplace to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city, and they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. So the next thing that happens is that remember persecution comes with the territory. They run into this violent mob, violent opposition. But remember, please don't forget the principle. Violent opposition to them doing the will of God, and God is going to use this violent opposition to do what? Expand the church. He's going to take the fact they're about to be beaten. Very next thing on your handout. They're about to be beaten. Severely. Put in prison. But God is using it to go go through to expand the church at Philippi and begin ministry to taking the gospel to the continent of Europe. Their persecution leads to them being in prison, which leads to them preaching to the Philippian jailer, who leads to him getting saved. His church, it goes to Lydia, they all get together, and the church expands because it's God's will. Now, back to the slave girl. What's the owner's her masters who own her. What's their attitude about her? What should be their attitude if they had any modicum of a moral sense of value? What should be their attitude toward this girl who'd been possessed by a demon and suddenly has been set free from that horror? If you were a caring person at all, what would your attitude be? I'd be you'd be excited and thrilled for this young girl to be set free. Look at the first thing to tell me what her attitude was. Oh no, we lost our quote and profit. They scared about because she could decide what they thought they were future demon. People were walking and they were making all kinds of money. And suddenly these Jews are taking away our golden goose. They were just throwing her out the trash. They don't care about it at all. But God does. So they dragged Paul and Silas to the Roman authorities. Remember, Paul and Silas were Jews. Right there. So hang on to that. It's going to be important. So they take their racism, their anti-Semitism, and what do they say in verse 20? These Jews exceedingly trouble our city. So they take them to the magistrates, and that were two guys who would rule the Roman colony and all the Romans would say to them is, we don't want any trouble. You make sure that everything stays peaceful. And so they take them, the men at Philippi, take the owners of the slave girl, go to the magistrates and say, these Jews are troubling our city and we're Romans. We can't have this. We've got to stay peaceful. Or, the Romans, or they're going to come from Rome. We're going to be in big trouble. And the magistrates understand that. So they accuse Paul and Silas of illegal religious teaching. The multitude, look at verse 22 again. The multitude rose up against them. The magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. No investigation, no hearing, no defense. They just react to the mob. The magistrate says, we've got to do something. These Jews are going to cause trouble. Rome's going to hear about it. We've got to do something. So beat them with rods. 
Without going into great detail, it's like when Jesus was scourged. This wasn't like, give them a couple of whacks and let's move on. There were two guys in the specific job. They carried this tool to beat you with. To where you're bleeding and you're ragged, close to death. But please remember, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, it's about to become important in the gospel going out. Paul and Silas are the two that are... Luke, Timothy, we're not. Paul and Silas are. You know what these messages have just done? Uh-oh. That's what they've just done sometime. But that's what they've just done. That's important in the So they're beaten by these authorities. Look at verse 23. It says, when they laid many strikes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer in rooms. Says verse 22, not to be together, the magistrates tore off their clothes. Some people made them into magistrates tore off their clothes, but they were so upset. Possibly, but literally, I think what it means in context is they threw them in prison. Verse 23 again, the end of it. Commanding the jailer to keep them securely, having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the state. They've been beaten almost to death. No care for those wounds at all. When it says they put them in there securely, it means put them in maximum security in the lowest part of the dungeon, and they put their feet in stocks. Stocks were a torture instrument. That's all they were. You're severely stretched out your torso, so your pain was excruciating on top of the beating that they'd already had. And the prison was nothing more than a large hole in the ground, particularly the security part, above a sewer with a trap door. If they died, they just dropped you through the door. Disease, starvation, exposure everywhere. Cold stone floor. No blankets, no coats, no ventilation, no privacy. Here's a quote from the Roman historian Sallust. He described the Mamertine prison in Rome this way, quote, Its appearance is disgusting and vile by reason of the filth, the darkness, and the stench. Down pitch black is going to be. Pitch black. No, no coverings. Nobody taking care of their wounds. Just thrown here. Basically left, you make it or you don't make it. How'd they get there? By doing God's will. Do you see that? By doing God's will. It's tough sometimes. It's tough. Go back through scripture. We talked about this a little bit in my class this morning. Joseph. Job. On and on. Doing God's will. Doing what's right. That's why it's such a scourge on our society when you hear clowns preach that if you're having trouble physically, it's your problem. If you're not healthy, it's because you don't have enough faith or there's some sin in your life. Please. It's just in the condition that we live in. God is going to use this. No, nobody wants to be beaten half to death and thrown into a hole in the ground and almost die. Of course not. I'm signing up for that. Boy, this is so encouraging. God sent them there without any question. Now, we've seen satanic power on display. Now, verse 25. Let's see the resurrection power of God on display. Verse 25. What's the first word? <laughs> but at midnight, the darkest... This is both metaphorically true and just true. The darkest moment they could be in and the darkest point of the night. At midnight, Paul and Silas, after all we just talked about, were blaming God and crying. Is that what it says? Man, I love this picture. I'm thinking, I can't wait to meet these two guys when I get there. They were praying, singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. If you don't see the principle of that verse, then you ain't paying attention. At your lowest moment, if you pray and cry out to God how much you love him, you sing songs to him, people are listening. You may not think they are. They're watching, especially if you've got a testimony that I love Christ, I'm a Christian, I want to live out that life. You don't think people are watching how you respond to tough times? You don't think people are watching how you respond when somebody's critical of you or hard on you or, or mean to you or cruel to you? Have we ever been persecuted? This is persecution. So when you're having a tough time, people are watching. How's he, how's he going to handle that? What's he going to do? How's she going to deal with that? 
They're praying. I love just the first word of verse 25. I know you've heard me say it a million times, my favorite word in the Bible, but I want you to notice. But, despite all of that, Satan has done his very best to stop the gospel from going to Europe. He got him in a hole in the ground. He got him beaten to death. What else can he do? He's done the best he can do. You know what the little word but means there? Sorry, it ain't good enough, Satan. It ain't good enough. Because here's how they're going to respond. Remember when Satan wanted to go before God and accuse Job and God let him? Why did God let Satan do that? Because he knew Job would glorify him. Here they are at the lowest moment. Remember, there's no light in there. They can't see. It's dark. They're hurting. They're in pain. And they're in the stocks. The pain is not just from being beaten. They're being stretched and they're hurting. And what are they doing? They're praying and singing hymns to God in that filthy dungeon bleeding to death. The word Greek, they're they're singing and praying. They were praising God. Jesus said, quote, Blessed are you and men shall provide you, persecute you, say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Notice again, verse 25, the last phrase. The prisoners were listening. And Greek means they attentively gave ear to. What an impression Paul and Silas must have made on those prisoners. Without touching them, just being there in the dark, I hear them praying, singing. Here's the principle. I'll read you a couple of passages. Here's the principle. Our praising God as Christians has nothing, nothing to do with our circumstances. It has everything to do with just rejoicing in who your God is. Because circumstances, what? They change. Sometimes they're really good. And sometimes they are incredibly bad, difficult, hard. But my rejoicing and my joy, as Paul would write write later to this church at Philippi, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. Do you think he remembered how the church got started? Of course he did. That's why he called them his joy and crown. Our rejoicing, the principle, has nothing to do with our circumstances has everything to do with who your God is. The omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent creator of the universe is your daddy, Father's Day. He's your father. That's why when Jesus taught us to pray, it was our father. How will be your name? Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not my will, not my kingdom, not our will, not our kingdom. Whatever you want, however you want to do it. We trust you. You're our father. I love that verse of scripture. It talks about earthly fathers. Know how to give good gifts. How much more does your heavenly father know? It didn't look good here, did it? In the Philippian jail at midnight. Paul would later write to the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, these words. Therefore, we do not lose heart even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. Our light affliction which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. But the things which are seen are temporary. The things which are not seen are eternal. Eternal. Light affliction, being beaten to death and thrown into a dungeon and put in the stocks, our light affliction is temporary. Because we look at the big picture. The things you can't see. The God who is at work for eternal glory. Philippians chapter 1, he wrote these words to this same church. I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. When he wrote those words, he was chained to a Roman soldier expecting to be executed. But it's good because the gospel is spreading as a result. 
And in 1 Thessalonians, he wrote these words to the church at Thessalonica. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. In everything, give thanks. It's easy to give thanks when it's all going good. Not so easy when it's not going good. So let's look at the cells, verse 26. Some of the earthquake there in the south at midnight are going to be described. There's a earthquake. The foundation of the prison was shaken. Immediately, all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loose. What God's saying in this moment? I don't say you did the best you could, but I'm sorry. Well, the earthquakes in that, in that area of the world are common. That's what critics of Scripture would say. Earthquakes are very common. It's not the fact they had an earthquake. It's a fact of the timing of the earthquake. When it happened, and every cell door popped open, and all their chains were loosed. Now, if you're just reading this novel and all that happens, you're thinking, what's the next thing that happens? If you're chained up and your chains suddenly pop free and your door flings open, what are you doing? I'm running. Absolutely. If I could run. Now, they can't, probably could not run. But what, are all the, what do you think all the other prisoners would be doing? And I'm out of here, Jack, and gone. So... Supernaturally, God says, I'm here. Message about his power. Nature bows to him. And when Jesus walks on top of water, he tells storms, oh, be still. I'm trying to talk to you, be still. Just stop. He controls the weather. He takes something and changes the molecular structure of it. It's water? Okay, let's make it wine. That's who your God is. He can handle a prison. And he does. Circumstances don't control God. He controls them. He uses them for his glory. But look at their message, verse 27. The keeper of the prison, the Philippian jailer, awake the Roman, awaking, waking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, he is supposing that the prisoners had fled. By the way, why would he suppose that? Because they were normal people. You would have supposed it too. All the prisoners had escaped. He grew the sword and was about to kill himself. Why? Because if you were a Roman soldier and you let a prisoner go, got, get free, you suffered their fate. You were either killed or you were in prison. That's the way it was. So all these prisoners got free of his body. He's assuming what? They're going to kill me. They're going to execute me. So he's going to commit suicide. What's the next word? But. I'm going to do a sermon series starting next week and just but in the Bible. But Paul, man, this is so cool. He calls out with a loud voice saying, do yourself no harm. We're all here. We're all here. In verse 28, I don't know if you write in the margin of your Bible, but this would be a cool place to write it if you do. Paul just saved this guy's life, didn't he? Now, we don't know what may happen down the road, but for this moment, Paul saved his life. And by the way, nobody's run off, so one thing he could say to the drugs, I got everybody, we're here. I didn't have any control over the earthquake, but I kept all the prisoners. Paul saves his life. We're still here. Verse 29. He called for a light, he ran in, and he fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? See the picture? They could be gone. Everybody could be gone. I could be dead. The power of their God, he sees it, he recognizes it. And he asked the question that every human being ultimately has to ask. How can I escape Sin and death. What must I do to be saved? The context, let's think. Knowing Paul and Silas, knowing Paul specifically and Silas is with him. Every time you see Paul from the moment he got saved on the road to Damascus, every time you see him, what is he doing? 
He's preaching the gospel. He's preaching the gospel. He's preaching the gospel. Even in the stocks, having been beaten and, and thrown into the dungeon, in the most secure part of the dungeon, what is he doing along with Silas? They're praying and singing hymns to God. They're witnessing. You think the jailer heard them? He's asleep. He's heard the song. He's seen the miracle. What you've seen is the power of the God. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll be saved, you, in your house. Profound yet simple. If you're in Jesus Christ. The jailer said, what must I do to be saved? The jailer's question was, and I love this because this is where everybody is. What must I do? Can I give you money? Can I work for you? You want me to come down and paint the church? What, what can I do to be saved? Do I need to go to classes? What do I do? What's their answer? Not, not do anything. What's their answer? Believe. Believe. You can't do anything to be saved. Remember, we all go through the whole Jerusalem Council thing. You've got to get circumcised. You've got to keep the law. You can't do anything. You trust in the work of Jesus the Christ. That's what will save you. Even to this day, people in churches all over our world on this Sunday, this Father's Day, there are still people flocking to churches because all our righteousness is filthy rags. There are none righteous, no, not one. You cannot ever do enough to earn salvation. Jesus did it for you. You trust his work. And then you do good things because you're a Christian. Not to get salvation because you've been given it. That's the gospel. Jesus came, he died, he buried, and he was buried and he rose again to conquer sin and death for you. You, tr- you put your faith in him. Believe. And the word believe here, that, vo- that verb governs this entire Sentence. You can't do anything. It's not about having religious creeds. It's not about going through rituals, being baptized. Yes, you're going to get baptized. But it's after the setup. Verse 33. Verse 32, excuse me. They spoke the word of the Lord to him, the jailer, and all his house. He put them in the same hour of the night and washed the stripes. And immediately, he and all his family were baptized. When they brought them into his house, he set food before them and they rejoiced, having believed in God with all his house. This jailer's life has changed because they went through the persecution and they were there. They heard. The jailer heard. His life changed. Look at the picture. This jailer who'd been around and seen, even if he may not have been in charge of, but he was there and he knew about the beating. He knew what, why they had the wounds, may have been there, watched and participated. He had them put in the stocks. He's been in charge of them. He takes them to his house and cares for their wounds that he helped inflict. Immediately, tough Roman Physically, he's loving these guys, taking care of them. He witnesses to his loved ones, they all get saved, bring them in his house, he feeds them. His salvation changed his life, and he starts doing it. He rejoiced, having believed. Now, notice verse 35. And when it was day, the magistrate sent the officer saying, Let those men go. Now, the jailer had to take him back to jail. See that? Paul saved his life. He had to put Paul back in jail. He took him to his house, cleaned him up, fed him, saw his family, they saved, they all get baptized, then he has to take him back to jail. So the magistrates, they go back to jail. Imagine that, that scene with all the other prisoners. They're coming back. I guess he caught them. No, it's an opportunity to witness. Look at what happened. So God opens a new continent through the people of the local church. Verse 35, 36. 36. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul, saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. First thing I want you to notice is that Paul and Silas are going to protect 
this new church, this fledgling church, you're going to protect the brethren of that church. Because here's what's going on. The magistrates, verse 35, sent the officers saying, let those men go. And they go to them, because they're, we'll see because they're Roman citizens, they realize they're everything, let them go. So they go to them quietly and say, hey, we're going to let you go. You just slip out of town. Don't cause a scene. We don't need any problems. Everything's cool. Just leave. Just get out of town. Go in peace. They'd beaten them, imprisoned them, left them for dead, illegally. And they just wanted them to get out of town. They wanted it to go away. Verse 37. What's the first word? But Paul said to them, Nah, nah, we ain't going to do that. They've beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans. You've thrown us into prison, and now you want us to be put, to put us out secretly? No, indeed, there is no way. We're not leaving that way. You let them come and get us out. In other words, you make those guys that did that, you make them come here to us to set us free. Make them come, we're not going to leave quietly. Here's what he's doing in verse 37. He's beaten us, all these things. He's asking for a public apology. Not to embarrass anybody, but just to make sure that the other Roman citizens who have just gotten saved and become part of this new church, they're not going to be treated the same way. I'm going to protect them. In verse 38, the officers told these words to the magistrates that they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. Uh-oh. So they came and they pleaded with them and they brought them out and they asked them to depart from the city. Again, please, please, leave quietly. We know we've been wrong. Please, leave quietly. Now verse 40. They went out of the prison, but they didn't leave the city. They entered the house of Lydia and when they had seen the brethren, they t- encouraged them. Then they departed. They left the prison on their own terms. God is set free. They left the brethren, the church, and encouraged them. What does that mean? Contextually, what we just read, they encouraged them to say, we've met with the magistrates, these are the new governing guys, we've met with them, and you're going to be okay. They're not going to treat you like they treated us. And so the church is meeting at Lydia's house. Her, those in her household, the Philippian jailer, those in his household, the demon possessed girl, others. I think some of the brethren here, this is my opinion, but I think it's worth I think when it says the brethren who were meeting there, I think a lot of them were those prisoners that heard of getting freed. The ones that could be, and they were part of this as well. As we close, think about the church at Philippi. Think about that church. One of the strongest that Paul ever ministered to. It was the most generous that Paul had. God's always working good. It's the time Paul writes, when nobody else was there for me, you were there for me. He loved these people. God just opened the continent through incredible persecution. But he did open it, didn't he? He's always at work. Bow your heads, please. We close our time today. So the gospel's now in Europe. But not easily. It was tough. It was difficult. But God's always at work. So as we get ready to share the Lord's Supper together today to close out our time, I just want you to focus on your own personal life as you hold the elements, as you're praying. You think about how am I responding to everything that's going on in my life, good and bad. Am I praising God? Am I singing to him and with a joyful heart? My rejoicing is not based on my circumstances. It's based on who my God is. Just, I love when I take the Lord's Supper just to sit there and thank God for all the good things he's done for me. And yet the Bible says even the difficult things, thanking for those because he's working good even in the bad. So Lord, as we close out our time together around your word and enter the time of sharing the Lord's Supper, 
Just ask, Father, that in each individual heart, you know every one of us, and every hair on our heads, you know us. Lord, convict us where we need to be convicted and encourage us where we need to be encouraged that we can be servants of yours as we leave here, remembering Jesus' death and proclaiming it till he comes. We pray in his name. Amen.